Welcome. Welcome to the Edge of Organizational Effectiveness. This is the podcast that explores stories about organizations and their performance. I'm your host, Charles Chandler. Today, we're at episode number 132, and I'm calling it The Organization of the Biosphere. In this episode, I talk with Dr. Fred Spear, a retired senior lecturer in big history at the University of Amsterdam in the Netherlands. We discuss his most recent book, How the Biosphere Works. Fred was previously on the podcast back in episode number 113, titled The Future of Humanity. And listeners may also recall that the topic of big history was discussed recently in our episode number 127. I'm now joined by Fred Spear from Amsterdam. Hello, Fred. Hi. Nice to be here. (laughs) Yeah, it's great to have you back. Uh, uh, Today, we're going to talk about your new book, which is How the Biosphere Works, Fresh Views Discovered While Growing Peppers. So the story of the biosphere is the story of life and how it started and how it evolved. Uh, But it started off very small and rather simple about 4 billion years ago, right? Yes, that's correct. That's what we think. And that's the, yeah, that's what the evidence is pointing at that we have. So that was single cell organisms. Um, How did those get started? Do we know? No, we don't. Uh, I think the leading hypothesis is that it started with molecules called RNA, which are carrying uh, information of our heredity. And currently, people are also thinking that perhaps it was not only RNA, but perhaps a complex of RNA and peptide molecules. And peptides are enzymes, mostly, or construction, at least they're they're very important for the functioning of cells. So it may have happened that that those molecules were among the first to kickstart life. Yeah, I mean, uh, I've heard that uh, COVID-19 is sort of an RNA strand left over from that previous world. Um, (laughs) do uh, Do you have any reflection on that? Well, we don't really know, I think, how viruses evolve, but I think the leading thinking, as far as I understand it, is that it's basically genetic material that escaped from cells and started doing business on its own, so to speak, and uh, and subsequently evolved. Basically, though, those molecules uh, live in the wild, so to speak, and when they invade cells, they use the, the cell's biochemical machinery to uh, make copies of themselves. And in doing so, they destroy the cells. Yeah. And that's how, that's how viruses propagate. Right, exactly. So the reason I wanted to have you on the podcast is I think there's a connection between the relationship of organisms to the biosphere, uh, which is the small to the large, and then organ, organizations to the world economy. And we, we may get into some of that a bit later, but let's, let's see if we can wrap our heads around the biosphere idea and, and how it relates to big history. I know the last time we talked on the podcast, 
Uh, you told us a lot about big history. And I think the reason it's difficult to get your mind around it is because it's very deep in time. And then you've got the small to the large. Um, we started small four billion years ago with single-celled organisms. And, and we ourselves, we ourselves, which we have, let's say, 30, uh, 30 trillion cells, roughly. Uh, some estimates differ, but uh, it's, it's from simple celled organisms to much more complex as time goes on. Uh, reflect on that a bit for us. Yes, well, I would say, on the one hand, you're absolutely right, that over the course of time, more complex organisms emerge. But I would say it's more like a whole range of organisms, many of which stay small. Yeah, and you could include viruses we just talked about. Well, all some of them become more complex. And the argument I would make now that is there are all different forms of, of organisms with different survival strategies, different business models, so to speak, how to survive and prosper in the struggle for life. Yeah, even the simple organisms that were at the beginning are still around today. They haven't gone away. Uh, and they, they just add uh, additional layers as, as things become more complex. Um, certainly, we, we still benefit many, in many ways from single cell organisms. Uh, uh, even in, let's say, wastewater treatment, uh, we have digesters that uh, take uh, waste products and, and break them down uh, through, through the miracles of single cell organisms. Oh, that's absolutely correct. There's so many ways that, that small organisms are influencing the biosphere. Also, many of them live on our skins, in our mouth, within our intestines. Uh, they're all over the place and they, they have very important effects on us and on the rest of the biosphere. Yeah, so how did you get into this journey of writing this particular book? I know you started off growing peppers and had some uh, sort of amazing discoveries along the way. Yes, uh, in 2017, here in this apartment where I'm now uh, talking to you, I started growing uh, peppers, uh, some kind of a diversion it was. It didn't have any other plans than that it might be fun to do so, and that perhaps we could learn from observing what they were doing. So that's how it started. And then during that growth season, I, I made a number of uh, observations uh, that were perhaps not that relevant, but still interesting to my mind. But then at a certain point in time, I, I saw that these pepper plants were making so many leaves and leaves are, are solar uh, cells, solar cells, solar uh, panels, right? That's how the plants capture the energy, the solar energy to keep everything going. That's what green life does all over the place. And they were making so many leaves that the sun couldn't penetrate through them anymore. So I realized that jointly, they were maximizing the capture of, of solar energy. And then I suddenly thought, hey, that is not something I've ever read about uh, in any literature. And I, I 
do have read a lot of it, uh, not everything, but quite a lot. And uh, I thought, hey, this, this might be a new general principle that might be very important for understanding the biosphere and its history. Because if that is what green life is doing over the course of time, capturing more and more solar energy and jointly seeking to maximize the capture of it, that is what provides the basis of the what I'm now calling the food capturing pyramid of all the organisms. And that is what causes all the effects on the outer shell of our planet and that we now call the biosphere. Without life, there wouldn't be a biosphere, obviously. And so if we want to trace the history of the biosphere, we have to start at the very beginning and think about what kind of energy those little critters were capturing and what their biospheric effects were. So I started suddenly thinking about the focus on capturing energy and the first ones to do so probably captured geothermal energy, energy from inside the earth uh, emanating from it. Um, while at a certain point in time, other organisms learn to capture solar energy. That is not new at all, of course, but the focus on capturing energy, I think was a little unusual. And especially the idea that suddenly we see a tendency of organisms to jointly tend towards maximizing the capture of energy. That is a general principle that I have not seen described anywhere. And I do think it is very important for understanding uh, the history of life and in consequence, the history of the biosphere. Yeah, in a sense, life is different. It requires energy to keep going. And I think what you're saying is that the sun is supplying all of that energy, basically, and then the organisms, uh, whether they're green life or other kinds of life, are feeding off of that energy in one way or another. Uh, you have the primary producers, I guess, which are the, the plants um, that are so soaking up the solar energy and using photosynthesis. Um, but then you have the secondary uh, folks that are feeding off of those uh, uh, first primary producers, feeding off of the plants, uh, like the herding animals and, and other things. Yes, that is, the, let's say, the traditional terminology. But I started to change the focus toward the importance of capturing the energy. Of course, you do something with that energy, otherwise you want to capture it. But uh, if you think about what pepper plants look like, well, they, they mostly have all those leaves. Without the leaves and the stems to carry the leaves, there wouldn't be any pepper plants. And, and the leaves are there to capture the energy. Otherwise, plant wouldn't exist. And if you think about sharks, the way they are shaped, well, they're very much shaped to capture their energy. And that, that applies to almost any, every organism. So capturing energy is a very important aspect of life, also of human life. And uh, what you do with it is also important, of course, but the, the, without capturing it, you wouldn't be able to do anything. And I think that is 
what sometimes gets lost a little among academics, especially among tenured academics, for whom the energy flows are secure. They don't have to think about capturing energy every day. But if you live in the business world, it's a whole different uh, affair. I think. I think everybody in the business world who is running a firm is thinking about how to make sure that you capture enough energy, money, to, to keep going. That is a main part of your focus, I think. And that is why it is important to understand that this is a very general principle occurring all over the place. Yeah, I think, you know, you've outlined in the book how the biosphere, which is that very thin layer around the surface of the planet, um, is soaking up the sun and is driving the processes of life. But then uh, some seven million years ago, uh, you know, forms of human, human, different kinds of human uh, emerged uh, to, uh, with, with intelligence that allowed them to capture even more and specific types of energy. Um, lead us down that road for a minute. Yes, well, I think the difference that humans made was and is that suddenly one single species started to capture all the available free energy, at least tending towards jointly maximizing the capture. At the beginning, of course, they didn't capture really a lot, but over the course of time, they and that's our species, we started capturing ever more sources of energy. Uh, you can think of, of course, food in forms of plants and animals, but also the use of fire, where we could set on fire whole landscapes and change them according to our wishes. Um, and then we, we started using wind and water power, capturing it. Think about wind and water mills, sailing boats. And then with the Industrial Revolution, we started capturing and using on a large scale the, all the fossil fuels that we could find. And of course, subsequently nuclear. And uh, again, thanks to industrial technology, also water power on a large scale with, with dams and generating electricity, all, all that stuff. And now we are seeking to capture solar energy directly with the aid of solar panels. So what we're trying to do is to capture all the available energy within the biosphere and there's only one single species that's doing it. And earlier in the whole history of the biosphere, roughly 4 billion years, all the species combined did it. But now suddenly one single species is dominating the biosphere and changing it yeah, beyond any recognition in a very short period of time. And I think uh, you outline in the book the, the reason why this particular species became dominant was because of the facilitation with language and a culture that allowed us to pass on to uh, succeeding generations what we've learned in the present um, and the knowledge expands as, as it goes along. Um, is, that, is that the way to think about it? I think so, yes. And I don't think that's a very new way of looking at it. 
But it's important to emphasize it. And that is what sets us apart as a species. To be sure, I would say uh, other species, animals also have, to some extent, intelligence, communication, uh, perhaps some shared culture, uh, although it's, it's harder to, to know because we cannot really understand their language very well and, and their thinking. But I think humans are far more proficient in doing the thing far more than any other species. And it has led to some feedback effect that basically put a premium on, on doing all these things, especially if you could capture more energy and do something with it. Well, I think that is in the end uh, where the payoff is. Yeah, we had an episode earlier on early management, which, which, which we said started about 10,000 years ago during the Neolithic revolution and mankind began to intentionally manage uh, plants and animals for their own benefit. Um, and management is sort of about, is sort of uh, cognition for, um, for action. So uh, if, you, if you understand the context in which you're operating and how to manipulate seeds and cultivate land and that sort of thing, uh, you have a technology essentially that allows you to, as you say, capture more free energy um, and to be more efficient in doing that. Yes, that was certainly a big change, although I think we should not underestimate the rationality of gatherers and hunters in managing their landscapes and making the best of it. But as soon as you start say agriculture and you start influencing the landscape in such incisive ways certainly that was a big sea change it started small again in different parts of the world but if you look at it from a biospheric perspective especially in terms of biospheric time it went in a flash very very quickly those 10,000 years is, is hardly anything on a geological or biospherical time scale. It's very hard to see in the geological records such, such a period of time. So it, it happened very, very suddenly and, and even more so when you start thinking about the Industrial Revolution. That, that was such a short period of time. It's hard to believe that it could happen like that as quickly as it did. Um, you know, uh, early man uh, left little in the way of footprints uh, on the on the terrain, and they were manipulating their environment, perhaps with fire and other things. Um, but they were in tune with nature, you could say, largely. Uh, but as some of these other ideas came in, uh, particularly agriculture, um, capturing a lot more free energy in a more efficient way that it tended to push out some of the earlier hunter-gatherer uh, types of activity. And as we see even today, you know, as, as business models improve, uh, they tend to push out uh, uh, the less efficient ones. Well, that, that is correct. But uh, I think it is also a matter of finding yourself in a certain situation, a certain dependency path. If you find yourself with a lot of people living on a relatively small area, 
there's no way you're going to provide a living with this gathering and hunting. And agriculture is typically a way of living where it pays off to have lots of kids because they can help you uh, on the land and are productive at a young age. Well, they also provide your old age uh, pension. Uh, and that is to a lesser extent the case with gatherers and hunters. They're, they're less productive at an early stage. So gatherers and hunters tended, we think, to limit the, the numbers of their offspring. Well, in, in agricultural societies, the opposite has been the case. And that is why as soon as that happened, uh, agricultural societies could overwhelm the gatherers and hunters. There are, there are many examples where gatherers and hunters lived next to agricultural societies and the, the gatherers and hunters did not really want to start agriculture because it was hard work. And as long as they could make do with what they were doing, that's what they wanted to do. But I think the agricultural societies became more productive as a result, also more powerful. And as over the course of time, as a result, they have tended to push out or take over uh, or convert the agriculture, the gatherer and hunter societies. And, and, and that is how agriculture has spread around the world, I think. Yeah. Well, certainly um, there has been a progression and some of it has been good. Um, but as we look at the modern world, um, we have many uh, problems to deal with, uh, not the least of which is global warming um, and uh, single-use plastics and, and other sorts of things that are um, mucking up the world. Um, you, you do have a chapter in the book about the future of humanity and, and where we might be headed. Um, reflect on that for a minute. Yes, well, you could say that over the course of time, life has been influencing the biosphere more and more, influencing the, the ways these natural loops function of all the chemical elements that exist, that the, all this is made of. Uh, and humanity has done it all over again, but even more incisively, one could say, because we have been making all kinds of products that did not exist before and for which there are no natural loops to what we tend to call recycle. I, I prefer now the word relooping. Uh, but uh, so we have been creating all kinds of substances that could not be relooped and cannot be relooped in the biosphere as it exists. So we either need to find out how to do it ourselves, or we have to stop producing them. Uh, and that is only one of the problems we are facing. There are so many biospheric effects as a result of the rise of humanity, and especially its, its most recent history, that it, it's, it's almost impossible to, to know all of them. But in my book, I've, been, I've tried to trace the general patterns of the increase of how life influences all these, these geological biospheric loops. And that you can see over time, yes, that has been a very dominant theme in the history of the biosphere. 
And then suddenly this one single species, us, we take over and we start doing it at a far larger scale than ever before with all kinds of new things that had never existed before. Uh, with all kinds of effects that are unintended, but still happen. And that's the fine situation we find ourselves in. So we have to be aware of that is the situation. It is not just global warming or just the plastics. It is a far bigger and far more complex uh, situation, at, which comes as the result as yeah as the result that we seek to harvest as much energy as we can as one single species and do all kind of things with them that we want to do. And I think that is what we need to reflect on. That now we find ourselves with eight billion people on the planet, and likely to be more over the course of time before that levels off. And that's really a lot of people who really want to do a lot of things without being aware that there are very new recent phenomenon in the biosphere and that we may be spoiling it for ourselves to such an extent that our survival chances for the near future are not that bright. So we need to think about how to manage that in a comprehensive manner. And I think that is something that is entirely lacking right now. We have institutions like the IPCC that is doing great work on uh, climate change uh, induced by humans. But there's far more on that. And there are no institutions, no organizations that analyze the situation of the biosphere, how it has happened the way it is, what could we do? And I think we urgently need to start such organizations, academic organizations that analyze it, that help us understand where we are and what we could do. I mean, one reason I started this podcast was to reflect on some of these issues and come up with a different form of management that uh, would allow organizations to include uh, within their operating systems uh, that reflect not only on you know, the day-to-day -day, uh, task of making money, perhaps, but to reflect on the longer-term issues of are we being effective and are we having a positive impact on the organization environment system? Uh, because essentially we are serving our environment if we're, um, whether we're making money or, or we're running a, a government agency or a nonprofit, our, our end users and our customers are out there in the environment. Um, they are looking for products and services that meet their needs and make the situation better. Uh, so if we look in a broad sense, uh, there should be a way to take all of these things into account and in incorporate them, integrate them into our day-to-day -day way of managing what we're doing. Um, Unfortunately, in this podcast, um, in the format, uh, we're, we can't delve into great detail. But uh, is there something you'd like to leave us with, uh, Fred? I think you have a very wide-ranging and important book here uh, that lots of folks will find interesting. Um, what would you like to leave us with as we go off, the, off this episode? I think we need to strive for it different way of looking at history, at the history of the biosphere, at the history of the role 
humanity has played within it to understand how the situation has become it is. Where we are now, living on this outer shell of a planet, swinging through space, very inhospitable place, that's what space is. Um, so how did this history happen? So I'm not against, let's say, more traditional forms of history, but I do think we have to provide a wider view of history from very early on. So I would say in, in primary school, secondary school, at university, everywhere, so that people become more aware of where we are on this planet and how it has become the way it is. I think if without it, people may not want to take that much action, but if they understand where they are, things may change. And starting from there, I think we could devise all kinds of plans, start organizations that help us to tackle all of that. Yeah, certainly we need um, action at multiple levels, including in the schools and, and uh, elsewhere. Um, but where can people learn more about what you're up to here, Fred? Uh, certainly they can find the book out on Amazon and we'll uh, have links to that. Uh, but do you have a particular website uh, that they could refer to? Um, well, I have my own website, fredspear.com, which provides an overview of what I've done during my career, because I see this book as the currently final stage of 40 years of very intensive research trying to tackle this question that we have been talking about. And my website, redspear.com offers some insights of how that trajectory has been uh, and where we may be uh, going. Okay, we'll have links to those in the show notes. Uh, it's been great having you uh, with us, Fred. It's been brief, but uh, very enlightening. Thank you very much for this interview. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. And that's about it for today. Join us again next time when we'll again consider stories about organizations and their performance. That's all for now. So long.